Welcome to episode 18 of the Podium Runner Endurance Podcast. On the show, I talk to athletes, coaches, and sports scientists about their experiences and advice. Thanks for listening, and I'm your host, Ian Sharman, head coach at Sharman Ultra and a professional ultra runner. This episode, we're talking to Jeff Burns, PhD, who's a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Michigan, and who also works at, uh, worked as an engineer in the automotive and medical fields previously. He studies running, biomechanics, and sport performance, and has been quoted in major mainstream running and news publications regarding his research on super shoes and the controversy surrounding them. He also competes internationally in ultramarathons and was the 2016 national champion in the 100K on roads. So today we're talking about super shoes and what difference they make in the real world. We discuss the recent controversy of the winner of the Vienna Marathon being disqualified for having shoes above the legal sole thickness, despite wearing shoes from the sponsor of the race. Uh, why super shoes are controversial and does it matter if records aren't comparable over time? We talk about how different brands compare to the original Nike super shoes and whether there's now a level playing field. Then we talk about what the benefits are of super shoes in practical terms, meaning related to speed and reduced fatigue. Plus, whether super shoes help on trails, given they're less stable and won't get as much rebound on softer or uneven terrain. So let's get into it. Welcome to the show, Jeff. All right. Thank you for having me, Ian. I'm excited. Yeah, it's been a few years since we uh, we last met up. Uh, probably, yeah, three or four years. But uh, since then, you've been very involved in a lot of the, the super shoe stuff that I've seen written about in many different publications. So I thought you'd be a great person to talk to about this. So uh, they're particularly in the news at the moment with the Vienna Marathon, where the uh, the winner, uh, Durara Harissa, I'm probably not pronouncing that right, but he was disqualified for having shoes that were too thick. And you wrote an article about this a couple of weeks ago for Podium Runner, so I'll link that in the show notes too. But before we get into that, I just want to talk a little bit about your own running career so people can get some context that you're not just a scientist, that you're also someone who really lives and breathes running. So when did you start running competitively? Um, I've been running, I would say, competitively maybe since elementary school <laughs> in a way. Um, I was really born born and raised in the sport. Um, my dad is a you know, very... Uh, passionate. He's a, he's a coach. So I grew up around his teams. Um, he's a student fan of the sport. Um, it's, you know, it's been in my lifeblood. I, I feel like I was kind of raised in a shoe store in the sense that that's where he hung out with his friends and things like that. So it's, it's, it's always been a part of me. And and so I ran, I started running competitively as, as early as I could. Um, and, you know, I ran through high school and then in college at the university of Michigan, and then kept running after and kind of found my place in, in, ultra distance racing um, after college. And that's where I've, I've kind of really found my sweet spot for success. And obviously you've had yeah, huge success there being a national champion in the 100K. You've had very fast times on particularly the kind of flatter, faster type of road courses around that kind of distance. So you're certainly someone who would have a vested interest personally in finding the best possible shoes. Uh, the difference between being the national champion in the second place, you know, the, these kind of things can potentially be decided now just on the shoes, never mind anything else. So um, why don't we uh, talk about the Vienna Marathon? So that, that just happened recently. The winner, I believe, is a, a 50 millimeter stack height was it they had, and the and the rule is that it can't be more than 40 millimeters. Yeah, yep, and and those those correspond to you know for for your listeners if they want to get super into the weeds on it that that corresponds to a U.S. size eight and a half in the rules is the way it's written. I believe that's is that a European four size 40 maybe or 42 about, about that. Um, yeah, 
Yeah, but, I also think of it in UK sizes, which yeah. is another random thing. Just there adds go, one yeah. for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> um. So so yeah. So it's it's fifty millimeters by that. So depending on you know if you were to go down to the shoe store and say you're a men's 10 or 11, it might even be thicker than 50 millimeters, but yes. Okay. So, and so that would be allowed, but then they'd look at the comparable shoe. So it's not like they measure it at the start or the finish line and say, oh, you have big feet and you have 41 millimeters. That's not going to count. It, it, no, it's not yeah. That. Right now the way, and honestly, the way I, if I could, if I could re, if I could write the, the explicit technical side of the rule, I would do something like that so that it is, uniformly enforceable but right now it kind of operates in a weird middle ground um where they they put the regulation around that one size and then now they have an, an approved list of of shoes that when companies you know release new shoes they can submit them to world athletics to be approved kind of on that size on that size guideline um it, I, I don't think it's the best way to do it but it's it's fine you can find the list online and it and it's there and so that's what adidas this shoe um, on that kind of spec size was 50 millimeters, which is 10 millimeters above the limit. And why is it at that number? Is there any particular scientific reason? Or did they basically, from what I can gather, kind of pick a number that happened to just allow for Nike's current shoes at the time to be legal? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's elements of that. Um, you could be a little bit more generous and say they picked a number that allowed for all current shoes that were on the market. Um, to safely fall within that or maybe shoes that were uh quick soon soon thereafter going to be coming out um which included yeah like so like at the time that that rule came down january january of 2020 um the vaporfly next percent was dominating everything and and that was that was depending on different outlets where it was measured it's right around 36 37 millimeters in, in that size range um, and then, of course, the Alpha Fly, their their next iteration of that came out um, right after the rules, and it was you know, 39.5 millimeters. <laughs> um, How convenient, yeah. Yeah, so, very convenient. Well, one thing you, you mentioned in the article that I've just uh, alluded to at the, uh, the beginning is that um, faster shoes are thick, but thicker shoes aren't necessarily faster. Right. So uh, could you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, so, so the idea is with with regulating shoes based on thickness was we really advances in materials notably the foams um really allowed shoe designers to rethink what could be a beneficial addition to the body <laughs> on the foot whereas so in the past the opt the optimality of a shoe because the foams were not great we had eva foam was the you know that's the kind of bread and butter foam for for most running shoes and it, it it's great because it's light and cheap um but it loses a lot of energy with every foot strike and so the optimality equation was actually just make it as light as possible with a, a little bit of a little bit of cushioning um but exactly. the racing flats most of us would think of as fast shoes yeah exactly exactly um but so the idea that like a thicker shoe you know is going to be or or a fast shoe is going to be thicker. What happens now is once you have better materials that can be essentially more, have more perfect spring-like properties. So when, you, when we think of a spring, you know, spring stores energy when it compresses and returns energy when it decompresses. 
And so a uh, bad spring <laughs> might return, you know, might absorb half that energy and lose it to heat. And so it compresses back. You only get half the energy back or something like that. And so EVA foam was pretty close to that. It was like 60%. It would return back. But these new foams are much more perfect springs um, where they, you know, the, the foam that's in the Nike shoe, which is PBAX, um, or it's PIBA foam, and the, the commercial name is PBAX, uh, that returns like high 80s, like 85 to 87% um, of energy, which is, you know, if a perfect spring that is, you know, doesn't exist, but an idealized spring is 100%, you're getting pretty close to that. So that's, that's a very, very nice, you know, so, so you now have that on your foot. Moreover, what's also very important is not just the energy return, because there have been other foams in the past that had better energy return, like Adidas Boost, that's a TPU foam. So that also is better than EVA, but it's a little bit stiffer and a little bit more dense. Whereas this, this foam from Nike, um, or it wasn't foam from, from Nike, but it's the foam that Nike uses, I guess. Um, it is... It is not only it doesn't not only has that energy return property, which is great, but what's really, really important is it's very compliant, which means it's soft. So when you step on it, it squishes down a ton. So even if you have a perfect spring that returns 100% of the energy, the softer, softer spring, if it's softer and a little bit longer, is actually going to be energetically better because you can store more energy and get it back. Um, so, So having that essentially longer, softer spring on the bottom of the foot becomes a little bit more favorable. So that's the idea. And then to make it, you know, further complicated here, um, that space, that, that longer kind of, you know, more advantageous foam, it also carries with, carries with it some issues of, you know, stability and how your foot moves over it. Cause it's now, you now have this like, you know, very soft, very resilient bounces back marshmallow underneath your foot. Um, and so there, you know, there are, you can now start to use that essentially as a scaffold to put architecture in it, i.e. like a carbon fiber plate Mm -hmm. to better facilitate your foot's interaction with the ground. Um, so that's what this idea that like a, a faster shoe is going to be thicker because you can, you can put more and more of this advantageous material under it, assuming, um, you're not incurring a weight penalty. And now that's one of the reasons why there is an optimality. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not ad infinitum. You can't put stilts on of this material and run faster. Um, but yeah, so, so the, basically the more and more of this material you can add to the bottom of the foot until you start to incur weight and stability issues, it can become more and more advantageous. And so it really kind of shifts that optimality point. And the idea is that if you took an old running shoe or like old by the standard of, you know, 2015 (laughs) um, and you had a racing flat that was 20 millimeters thick. If you put this great foam on there, um, you probably would not be harnessing all of the potential benefits of it. Um, Moreover, you might not even have room in that 20 millimeters to put a nice, um, you know, maximally advantageous plate shape. Um, so then you could, you know, the more, more of that foam that you add, you add a longer and longer of this very favorable spring to the body. Um, that is, you know, what's very important is it be- behaves better than the body's natural structures. So it, it stores and returns energy better. And very importantly, it does not fatigue. 
um, your midsole foam over the course of a race, and you could argue there are slight like mechanical changes with heat or things like that, but, but by and large, it doesn't tire out. Um, <laughs> you, you don't need to give gels to your, to your foam. Um, so, so yeah, so, so you're adding more of this advantageous foam. And then of course, like I said, to bring this all together, so faster shoes are going to be thick because you can, the way that you make a better addition to the body is adding, you know, materials of these favorable properties with, with constructions within them, but thicker shoes are not necessarily faster. And that gets back to this idea that, yeah, these theoretical properties are great, softer, you know, better energy return, um, and changing kind of the, you know, the levers of the foot on the ground, um, or the, the interaction with the foot in the ground. Um, those are great, but at some point, you start to have issues with um, the weight of the shoe, for one, um, because even what was so magical about this new foam is that it's actually less dense than EVA, um, you know, it's or or certainly Boost TPU, or um, and so so you could not only did it have these favorable properties, you could actually add even more of it because it was so light. So it was kind of this like having your cake, eating it too, and then having seconds. Um, but anyways, so you have the weight that obviously at some point becomes an issue. And then you also have stability. Like you, there, there is a cost of um, the more and more, you know, stack that you add to something, it does become a mechanical challenge to stabilize yourself on it that maybe is not an issue at 30, 40 millimeters. But certainly as you go higher, it definitely starts to increase. And it probably, because of the way levers work on the ground, it probably increases non-linearly in the sense of, at some point, it becomes very unstable very quickly. So, yeah, like someone could imagine, if it's if it's like a foot of foam underneath you, you would not feel stable. That would be all yeah. completely wobbly. Yeah. And I can tell you from I've run in the the Adidas shoes that are fifty millimeters, and they feel very weird to run in. Like very, I I would not want to be going around a lot of turns very quickly on those. They they are they are kind of unstable. Um, and so, so there's the stability. And then finally, there is even this idea that this has yet to really be, I think, fully explored, but the idea that, that you can actually, at some point, if you add enough of this foam, if it's not soft enough, um, i.e. like you don't fully squish that spring down, you're actually kind of carrying on your body elements of a spring that you're not fully using. So the more and more of it that you have to add, it has to be just the right amount so that you can use the full amount of that spring optimally, but but isn't uh, necessarily dead weight that you're not fully compressing or something like that. Um, so yeah, so there are definitely, it's one of those things where the optimality shifted and it definitely shifted towards making something thicker. And so the idea is like, if you limit the thickness of a shoe, you're going to hit an asymptote at some point of like, optimizing those, essentially those spring characteristics. I, I was thinking it, everything you were describing there sounds like a graph to me. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got on one side, you've got stack height as that increases. And the other one is, well, effectively how fast you can run. Yeah. And that there's going to be a, a curve there and you're looking for the highest point on that curve, um, which will vary with the different foams, will vary with other design features. And they're trying to pick the highest point, i.e. the fastest shoe you can make. And that seems to be somewhere around where they are with the current technology. Right. Yep. And and I think I think that is that is right. And I, I actually think that you could like as it stands with the current materials out there right now, 
you might be able to take that regulation away and have it be and have nothing really change. Um, like they could be somewhat optimized right now for what's available. But one of the reasons that we that I advocated for the regulation as it stands is not necessarily like I actually don't like the idea of regulating as a reaction to things that are out there. The idea is that you regulate forward looking so that so that things don't jump into the ecosystem unexpectedly and disrupt it without being able to understand it. And so that's that was kind of what this was was like, hey, if these changes or we figure out something, you know, from an engineering standpoint or a biomechanics standpoint in the future um, that can further shift this optimality, right? We have a protection against that so we can understand what it is before we bring it into the ecosystem. Whereas what happened with shoes as it stands now is there were no rules really. There were like flowery legalese language that was not at all enforceable or had no meaning. It was like something to the effect of shoes cannot provide unfair assistance or advantage. And it's like, well, that's like, okay, what do I do with that? Um, I would say it's kind of similar to something like Formula One driving where they set a load of rules because there may be new technology, technological advances, advances they don't even know about yet, but you don't want it to just be, well, one team has managed to work out what they are ahead of everyone else, and then they win just because of that. And yep. so it's not a level playing field. So um, a couple of questions that, that result from that. Um, first of all, does it matter if the records aren't comparable over time, in your opinion? So if everyone's shoes are fast enough, so let's assume everyone has access to the fastest shoes, no matter what, what brand it is, um, and everyone's going whatever percent faster, and therefore all the records go down, which we've kind of been seeing in general, um, do you think that matters? I mean, technology does tend to improve. If, if people were to wear shoes from 50 years ago, they'd be going slower than shoes from five years ago still. Yeah. Um, I The question of does it matter is really, that's like, that's like a, that, that's a fundamental question that cuts to the core of running. Um, and I, I feel like my, my, ins, my instinct, my intuition or gut says, says yes, but I also can then make the rational argument of, of no, in the sense that like, we do have progress that, that does change that. But I do, I, I would say that, you know, shoe, shoe technology has evolved, but it really was pr- like for the, from, you know, say 2015, um, or even up until like 2016, before these shoes first started appearing, uh, you know, up until like 1960, like for 50 years, it was pretty, I would say maybe late 1960s. Um, it was pretty, pretty uniform. So we've had really nice, um, com- you know, it's been a, the, one of the values of the sport is our comparative ability that really other endurance sports don't don't really benefit from, or they have had equipment um, issues or advances that have you know substantially shifted those performances, and they've kind of sacrificed that. Whereas running preserved that for a very long time, and I think my suspicion is one of the things that is really appealing to running for most people, um, or at least a majority of the people, is that comparative ability of our performances, our trans, I would say our transferability of performances and our transposability of performances in the sense that we, we have, you know, we have internal and external validity to them. We, we can compare ourselves 
to ourselves. You know, past, present, future. We can compare ourselves to, or you know, we can compare runners of today to runners of you know another time. And I think that that having some sort of like consistency in that, you know, does it matter? I feel like my feeling is is yes. Um, is it critical for like the preservation of running as a sport? No, running will continue to go on whether or not we have that or not. But but was it something very special and unique? I, I think the answer to that is yes. And and we get that, you know. Um, it I mean it's just it's kind of hard to it's like we've lost a dimension of enjoyment of the sport. You know, it's kind of like the sport used to exist in four dimensions. Now it kind of feels like it exists in three dimensions. Um, we kind of just take races at face value now, or at least- You can only really compare this year's times to this year, not even maybe last year because of changes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I think I think there is that. Now, that, that was, again, another motivation for kind of proposing this rule is like recognizing that, hey, if we set a standard and set a framework of regulations, Maybe this is just a step change that, yeah, it kind of cuts us off and we recognize that maybe marathon times are a few minutes faster and half marathon times are, you know, a minute or so faster or something. We kind of get a rough ballpark of how much times have shifted, but we can now really start to compare, you know, performances in perpetuity moving forward. We've started making a new data set to compare against. And so I think that was one of the motivations for regulations is we kind of set a limit, an asymptote on on, on a performance change from shoes. Um, but that question, getting back, does it matter if we can compare performances or not? There are definitely people out there that would say like, no, it doesn't matter. Like we're gonna have performances that like, yes, we have all these all time marks and it's fun to compare against them, but inevitably, and I, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. It's like, well, there are always qualifications to a performance, whether it's weather or certain course aspects or something like that, that like prevent you from having some sort of like maximal physiological perfection or something like that. And so maybe now footwear is just kind of an element of that. So I think there is, there is that sense of, uh, you know, there are people that would, cause I mean, cycling exists like that like it's it's a sport that is so dependent on um that 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 like you don't you don't pay attention to times or speeds and races at all it's purely head-to-head stuff but i think again getting back to running one of the appeals of running for people is like finding uh finding meaning in their performance and having some some sort of definition or criteria of success that is um, deterministic, that's independent from from what other people do. And you don't get that in cycling, like your performance is entirely dependent on what other people are doing. Whereas in running, like it's there's self-determinism. And I think having performances that are comparable across times are an element of that. I mean, it's something that I'm, I don't know, like I said, I, I really struggle with it because I think it I mean, there are certainly other advantages to bring this in, but I would say that's one of the big things that we're kind of stepping away from. And maybe maybe we were always moving away from it or like gradually progressing. But um, I mean, it's something that I've, I've really struggled with with myself um, in my own running, because interestingly, I, you know, I at the end of 2018, I had a really bad Achilles injury and it started a spiral 
of foot injuries that meant for 2019, I was injured for most of the time, did not run very much. I actually thought my competitive running career was over. You know, I went months at a time without running, um, was wondering if I was going to need surgery on my foot. Like I, I couldn't, couldn't run without excruciating pain. And then in 2020, actually, like right after I finished um, d- defending my dissertation, I was finally in a place where I thought I could start running again. I started building back up. And I've now, you know, been through the end of 2020 and through now have been training really well and feel like I'm in what might be the best shape of my life. But it's like so much of my um, key like workouts and things like that I'm doing in new footwear that I'm like, I have, I, I, I used to have workouts and courses and routes and like sessions I would do that were, would really give me a good barometer of where I was compared to previous self. And I have no, I like, I mean, I have a, I have an idea in the sense of like maybe heart rate responses to different paces I run in old shoes to give me a suspicion, but it's like, I don't, I've, I've definitely cut off like the connection to, I don't, I don't speak fluently to my old self anymore, you know, in some of the key workouts. And so there's even that kind of level of disruption that I've had within myself that makes me a little sad, but it's also, like I said, it's, it's, you can't have progress. You can't have like real big progress or, or progress, or I would say evolution without having a sacrifice of something. And we are sacrificing that for maybe some of the benefits of these shoes, whether or not that's a worthwhile sacrifice. I think the question is, is how much the question you asked, does it matter that we can compare ourselves? Um, how much that question matters to people is maybe, maybe, um, maybe the answer to it. I completely agree. I think there's so many things in there. And part of it is just that it's a bigger improvement than other things. It's one thing if, if you're getting very minimal changes year to year, but this seemed like it's more of a step change. So I kind of have two related questions here. Uh, first of all, how much does it, like the latest generation of shoes, yeah. how much do they actually improve your speed? And secondly, um, does that vary a lot between people? Because that would matter more. Because if you had the world's top 10 runners at the 2012 Olympics in order, and then you put them all in the same shoes now, does it change that order? Because they they have varying uh, responsiveness to the new shoes. Because that, I think, would be more of a concern to people. If it actually gives more of an advantage to one person than another versus everyone gains the same. Yeah, two great questions. So one, we can... Uh, the first one of, of how much does it change it? Um, yeah, so the you know the the first studies that came out on the original Nike Vaporfly, um, the Vaporfly Pore Percent, had the first the first study that came out was out of the University of Colorado, and they tested them across a range of speeds many times and settled on that four percent number compared to old racing flats, the Nike Streak and Adidas shoe. And it was actually this is one of the things that's overlooked a lot of times with people is that was four percent weight controlled on the shoe they added weight to it to make it the same weight as the oh, wow. this shoe so it was actually well, just related to that quickly is that four percent that they were going four percent faster or they had four percent less energy consumption great question yeah so this is really important it was four percent less energy consumption at, at the same speed and so we I'll, I'll talk in a second how that compares to the speed um so it you know not not weight controlled they estimated it would be about you know close to four and a half percent um, of an energy benefit. And the, the new iterations of Nike's shoes have, we have not had 
let lab data on the next percent, which was kind of the reformulation of that. They added a little bit more foam to it. Um, or the, the alpha fly, which is the kind of very complex shoe. And we actually do have a, uh, there is a very recent study out that looked at the next percent in the alpha fly compared to some other flats. But this gets into an issue I was going to mention is like, that is the energetic benefit running on a treadmill in a lab. And there's lots of noise just within that context. Like the treadmill that you use will change how much of an energy response. The Colorado study was nice because it was a very, very hard treadmill, very similar to running on asphalt. Um, softer treadmills will kind of wash out a little bit of that benefit. Um, you know, even even metabolic carts from lab to lab to lab might might change a little bit in their sensitivity or noise or something like that. Um, so just the measurements that we take are going to be a little, there's going to be plus minuses on all of those. But there have been, you know, subsequent follow-up studies that confirmed benefits of that magnitude. Um, if I had to hedge that uh, you did a study on a really stiff treadmill in a, you know, well, you know, multiple times, the new newest versions of those shoes might push four and a half, five percent of an energy benefit on average. Um, but now and you're saying the harder the surface, the more that'll be the case. So softer surface, less so. Yeah, exactly. Because it, it um, you know, that's the benefit of the shoes is how soft they are. And so essentially running on a soft surface, you're kind of, um, you're, you're taking some of that, the treadmill is, is literally absorbing some of <laughs> that, that benefit, um, doing some of the work for you, literally the mechanical work. <laughs> um, but uh, so anyways, so there's, there's that. So there's, there's noise in, in that. And then, <laughs> then you further complicated of taking a lab economy benefit out into the lab running economy or out into the field running economy how much energy you consume um you know per kilometer per mile or whatever that that is one of the that's like one of if not the most important you know critical determining factor in, in your performance as a long distance runner out on the roads but it's not the only thing and it's also how that translates out into the field is going to have some noise around it um, mathematical modeling, as well as some experiments, has suggested it's probably at the speeds of an elite marathoner is, you know, it's it's probably going to be about two thirds or three quarters of that benefit. Um, so if it's a 4% benefit in the lab or a 5% benefit in the lab, it's going to be, it might be, uh, you know, like two and a half, three and a half percent speed benefit out on the roads. And now it's what's further complicates things is like, that's also speed dependent, partially due to like air resistance. <laughs> so the slower and slower someone runs out on the roads, you actually get more and more of that benefit. Benefit. So if the ah, so there's more benefit for a an average runner than there is from an elite runner. Yeah. Yep. By by the by the speed modeling. Um. So by by the effect of like air resistance. Uh. Yeah. So like a four hour marathoner is going to get a more of a more of a time benefit than a than a or even a percentage benefit than a. Um, yeah, I was, was going to say percentage, obviously, because they can. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. more relevant. Yeah. Yeah. So more of a percentage benefit. Um, so there's so there's that. Um, but also, like I said, there, there's like variance around how that translation occurs, and then further to then blow it all up, every person is going to have a different response to that. You know, like that Colorado study that I referenced across all the all the conditions, the participants were about two to 6%. Okay. And, you know, hovering right around that 4%. Um, and other, other studies have kind of observed a similar thing. Um, 
And so everybody's going to respond a little differently. Now, the question is, at an elite level, you know, would, would just individual response to those shoes reshuffle like the order of the Olympics? Uh, that I think certainly having the shoes and not having the shoes would definitely do that. Like I, I actually look at for maybe for your listeners that don't know, like that, those shoes were given in the men in the, at the Rio Olympics, the top three finishers had those shoes and nobody else did. They were Nike athletes. And sure enough, they finished in the top three. Um, cause I always joke, it's like Nike spotted them, you know, two or three minutes on the starting line. Um, which it's say it's a joke, but it's also like that's well, just from the numbers you're saying there, if, if it's two thirds of say a four or five percent benefit, yeah, uh, and and or let's just look at it this way if it's between two and six percent energy benefit, yeah, so let's say four percent, four percentage point variance, and then there's two thirds of that is speed, yeah, you're looking at yeah, two and a half percent speed difference between and that and at the top level you know one minute in a two-hour marathon is less than a percent yes so if you get that kind of change that you're talking about several minutes off the top top level guys yeah which easily could change the positions yep so so there's there's that but um so i so i always make the argument that like you know galen rupp's performance at the most recent olympics where he was i think was he eighth uh thank you I actually think that was a better performance than his uh, uh, real Olympic performance where he was third in the bronze medal um, because this Olympics, everybody had, you know, the shoe technology. <laughs> um, and he was, I think you look at the times, the way he finished relative to the medalists. I think if you adjusted for all of that, it's, it's maybe, you know, arguably a better performance. But uh, that, that's definitely sounds to me like it's an even bigger deal than saying, can you compare the world record from 1980 to the world record now where yeah. you, you, you know the shoes have made a difference, but even more so if it changes from the 2016 to the 2020 Olympics, a medalist to not a medalist because of the individual variation, that well, that's so, totally upsetting the, well, the so dynamics important of the sport. Is not that it, that wasn't what I was describing is not a case of the individual variation. It was a case of in the 2016. Well, everyone else catching up. Yeah, by having exactly. that benefit Other people too. not having yeah. access. Yeah. And so that's where getting to your question of like, um, what, you know, how, how much that individual variation affects it. What I, what I think is an, an open question is how much individual variation there is at the absolute top level of the sport. So I think somebody could maybe make, make an argument that if you look among, you know, 210 or faster marathoners, they might actually all have a pretty homogenous, like a much tighter response to the shoes. I think there's there's an argument to be made there and that like the more well, because they're all very efficient already. Exactly. Yep. So they okay. all have probably much, you know, slightly more um, similar interactions with the ground, I would say. <laughs> um, whereas once you start going slower and slower and slower um, and people have different you know, characteristics in their running form or something like that, that that's where you might actually invite larger and larger variation. Um, you know, the, the, one of the recent, the recent study that is probably it's a forthcoming publication, but, um, looked at a lot of these different shoes across brands. Um, they found that, yeah, there was like big individual variation. And one of the things that they noticed was that, um, people, some of their participants who they used a little bit lower caliber of runner of some of these other studies, um, some of the, the people that trended towards having bigger responses were people who were less efficient up front. Um, and, and that's not, that's not entirely, I'd say that's 
not entirely unexpected in the sense that you see that with a lot of interventions that like, you know, people that have uh, like more room for growth or optimization, like you can make a greater percentage improvement if there is really some sort of like asymptote that things start to approach um, or at least like, you know, start to have diminishing returns. So there is that element of like, you know, mid mid packers, <laughs> um, no, but people people were running a little bit slower. Um, yeah, maybe maybe they have a, a, a slightly different or greater spectrum of responses. We'll say maybe not. So two two guys who are both four hour marathoners are probably going to have more variance in their response to the shoes than two guys who are two or five marathoners. Bingo! I think that's a that's a great hypothesis that I would I would bet on. <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, just related to that then, so is there any variation that we know about between men and women? Because there's changes in hip width relative to the rest of the body. Do things like that factor into it? So is that all elite people, men and women, or could there be a difference for women? Yeah, that's a great question. And we actually do have, there was this, one of the follow-up studies, original ones on the Vaporfly looked at, um, they're pretty fast, men and women. Um, it was at, done at Grand Valley State University. And they saw no difference between the men and the women on the treadmill at the same speed. Now, though, that gets back to when you translate it out into a race situation, women are running slower than men, like, at, you know, at, at across you know, levels. Um, so they, they ostensibly, you know, the hypothesis, if there is a speed dependency to that benefit, um, would benefit time-wise and percentage-wise a little bit more than the men. And that's actually shown, been shown to be true in some of the kind of race analyses that have been done, where the times, women's times have shifted a little bit more than the men's times. Um, so they, their energetic benefit as a percentage um, is probably pretty similar. Um, and that's what, you know, we have some lab data to show that. Um, and uh, on the, in the races, though, they might get, their times might shift a, a little bit more. Yeah, that's certainly very interesting. And you're saying that's mainly from what we understand because they go a bit slower. So the wind resistance factor yeah. is taking away less of the benefit. Yep. And there was nothing, you know, we don't have, we don't have like a really detailed kinematic study or anything like that to see if there's anything related. But like I said, in, in, a, in the lab, um, on a treadmill, they didn't, they had a similar metabolic response to the men. So, so we, we just talked about all, this, all the research has been done mainly on the Nike stuff because they were the first ones to do this. Yeah. But have other companies caught up now? Like, is that 4-ish percent, 5% uh, gain in, in uh, energy consumption the same with different brands? Because uh, am I right in saying that Nike's um, foam, they're the only ones that have that exact foam? So the other companies are trying to find their own branded foam uh, and that there could there's likely to be some variation for a number of years there? Yeah. So I would say in terms of have the other companies caught up, um, I would say no, for, for the most part. <laughs> okay. um, they've, they've, the other companies have, many of them have advanced and closed the gap, um, but absolutely caught up. Like if you ask me, somebody who, you know, is... Uh, an expert in this field, I guess. And presumably you've run in most of these. Yeah, any, yeah, these I've run in shoes, So you can com directly compare the feel and the speed for yourself. Yeah, I'm like, I'm going to be racing in the Nike shoes. Um, that's what I do a lot of my work in. Um, and there's, there's a, there is, so I'll, I'll say a couple things. One, you can look at the, primarily the properties of the foam or something that can tell you a lot about that. So Nike, Nike does not, the foam is not, 
proprietary to Nike. Like I said, it's called PBAX and it comes from a French chemical company, Arkema. Now, what I'm not sure about is, is how much of the manufacturing um, science that Nike has around the foam and the way, because it's like this foam, the, the chemical structure of the foam, there's, there's that, but then there's also how you manipulate it in a manufacturing context to actually turn it into the, the properties of the shoe that's on your foot. Um, there can be, whether it's patents or licenses or, you know, exclusive things with the company to do that, I think that, that formulation of the PBACs is the only, Nike is the only one doing it right now. Sockney's shoe has that same polymer, that same material, PBACs, but they do it a little bit differently. Um, they use they what are kind of like called expanded pellets of it. So if you look at it, it looks kind of like what Boost used to be, which was the same thing, but it, it looks like a bunch of pellets mashed together. And so it's I've noticed from my personal experience as well as kind of having it, um, uh, doing some testing on it, it's it's not quite as soft as Nike's shoe. So it, it is it is pretty pretty good energetically in terms of returning energy, but it doesn't it feels a tiny bit less less soft from the Nike. Um, and the shoe itself, that Sockney shoe is heavier than the Nike shoe. So that's one of the things that like with shoes, all else being equal, weight is a very important thing. Um, so, so yeah, so there's that. And then every other company um, are using different formulations of foams to try and achieve those same properties where they're, they're changing up, um, you know, how they like, Puma is using, I think Puma uses EVA with uh, using nitrogen in the foaming process to make it a lot lighter and change the chemical structure of that EVA a little bit. And so I think they've achieved something similar where it has good energy return properties and is super, super light and very soft. Um, how that, how that you know, affects, we saw, obviously we saw Molly Seidel do well in the, uh, <laughs> the Olympic marathon. But, you know, the plural of anecdote is not data. Um, so that's definitely one that I'm curious to see where the data lands on that. But the other companies beyond that, again, have just kind of tried to do similar things with foams that have gotten part of the way there, but I think not all the way there. And they're, like I said, I keep alluding to, there is a recent study out that looked at a bunch of these shoes from Hoka, Sockney, New Balance, um, Asics. And what they found was that the Nike, the two Nike shoes, the Next Percent and the Alpha Fly, and the Asics shoe, which that's the one that I failed to mention. I don't know the property. Asics hasn't said what what polymer they use in that foam, so I can't speak to. I, and I haven't run in that, so I don't know much about it. But in this study, those three shoes were not different from each other, and they were the best performers. So they were kind of at the top of the list, the best with no statistical difference from them. And then there are other shoes below that. That like the Sockney shoe and the New Balance shoe both performed well compared to old, an old racing shoe, but not quite as well as those. And then um, the like the Hoka shoe, and I think there was another one I can't remember um, was not was not different than the traditional racing flat. Um, and so it goes to show that like you can look at the midsole properties of the foam and make a make a good guess on where it's going to fall because the carbon fiber plate that you see a lot of companies putting in these shoes is not really going to be a substantial benefit on, on its own. It's more, it's more like that plate is a necessary architectural piece to realize the benefits of a great foam, if that makes sense. So it does. Yeah. No, I mean, that, I think a lot of people heard carbon plates and they thought, Oh, that's the new thing, but you're yeah. saying it's much more the foam that's made the difference. Yeah, exactly. Um, the, like I said, the carbon, the, 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 the foam is like the, 
Yeah, <laughs> it's gonna be this would this would be fighting words, but I was gonna say the foam is like uh, 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 is like Paul and John and maybe George and the and the is Ringo, but I'm, I'm, there are some Ringo fans out there that are gonna like fight me on that. But um, that that is also quite an old school reference. I'm sure there might even be some people listening who have no idea who those yeah. four people are. <laughs> but no, and so. Um, there's still probably some variation, as you said, there, and the other shoe brands are catching up. But um, part of the reason I'm guessing all of these shoes cost more is that these materials cost more, and they're paying for the R&D and also, I'm sure, some marketing element to it as well. Yeah, and it, that's that's definitely true. Where it's like the these these foams are, and that's actually something. This foam that the the Pebax foam, this has actually been around in the industry for a while. And when I say while, I mean maybe the early like 2012 or so like companies have known about it and kind of kicked it around but it was it was so expensive to work with that they thought like nobody's gonna pay you know we'd have to we'd have to charge 250 dollars to break even on this shoe like nobody's gonna pay that much <laughs> um if it takes a minute off your marathon time people well, will pay <laughs> well or three or four um, oh, oh, yeah but uh but what i think one of the important things to realize and maybe to get your listeners to think about is like these sh- like these shoes, performance racing shoes, are not large revenue drivers for a company. Like, you look at any running specialty company, or even Nike. Like for Nike, the next percent shoe, the volumes that they sell on that, is nothing to their company's bottom line. But and so so that's very unappealing for for like you know another shoe company is like they're not going to want to break their bank to not just develop one of these shoes. But also, you know, a lot of them only have, if some of them don't even have engineer, like actual engineers, and if they have any engineers, they're, they're, they're spread thin over their product lines that are actually driving revenue, <laughs> um, you know, like daily trainers and stuff. So if you're going to devote a significant amount of your development resources to figuring out how to like manufacture and prototype these highly specialized shoes that you're only going to sell a very, very small volume of, it doesn't make a great business case up front to even do this. So that's why you've seen... Other than put, putting yourself out there as the number one, the best. Exactly. Yeah. And this gets back to kind of a, a, like maybe a business school case study of like, there is, there's enormous advantage to being at the top and almost none to be second, <laughs> you know? And, and so I think it's a very interesting dynamic for a lot of these, these companies. And, and I have sympathy for them because I can see how it's like, it just doesn't make, it just doesn't, it's not a good business case necessarily to, to develop that shoe. Now the flip side is like, there is the, you'd say the trickle down development side of it of like, if you, and this is where you kind of see, you know, maybe a formula one analogy or something like that of like, you develop some of these technologies and figuring out, figure out how to work with them at the top end that eventually they become standard in all of your shoes. And that's like what I'm hoping happens with these foams is like, I love like the, the train, look, my day-to-day trainer is the Saucony Freedom, which uses their kind of P-Bax foam. Um, I love that shoe. And I hope these, these foams become, you know, standard because EVA is like, EVA is a pretty mediocre foam and it's like, we can do better than that. So, so I think if you can learn how to use those to drive your business forward, it does become advantageous, but it really like people should understand these shoes, racing shoes primarily serve a marketing function for these companies. Um, and so 
I mean, I would I would certainly champion other like shoe companies to let their to let their athletes race in Nike shoes to get good performances and and use those good performances and laurels to like sell their training shoes that make them a lot of money. I think that's a better that's a much better case than finishing lower in races and like further propagating the image of inferiority. Um I feel like that there's this is a whole uh, additional podcast about the <laughs> the uh the choices for elite athletes and uh and marketing of, yeah. of elite athletes for for a company definitely but um I don't want to get too far off the the topics of how that'll affect most people because most yeah. people are not making their living <laughs> in that right. way but no I think it's a very valid point so um when we look at say the marathon and also beyond that one of the things we've said is it takes less energy. So that's super useful. But there are other things going into how well you perform. Mm. And anyone who's run a marathon knows you get kind of sore and tired at the end. So yeah. is there also some benefit there that the um, reduction in the pounding on the muscles could mean less muscle damage? Because I've heard anecdotally people saying that. I've honestly found that myself as well. Last marathon I did, I was at mile 26 thinking I feel completely fresh. I feel like I'm at mile 16, not mile 26. So for an even longer distance, presumably that's an even bigger gain, at least on, on roads. Yeah. So this is, you, you, that's definitely something that we, we hear a lot and there's even a little bit of data to support that. And then, so I'll get into that. And then I'll also say, I think it's going to actually change the, the landscape of racing. And this is maybe one of the, some might argue is one of the benefits maybe of these shoes, but so, yeah, so, so the benefit of having that, that this new foam being so much more compliant that is doing a lot of that cushioning work for your body that otherwise your muscles and tendons are trying to do. Um, now that foam is doing some of that. Yes, that changes, that changes the, the physiology of both training and racing um, in the sense that, uh, so yeah, so there is a there was a uh, study actually done by some of the people at the Nike Nike Sports Research Lab where they looked at runners. Um, I think it was was in the maybe in the Portland Marathon or something like that. Runners that ran in the Pegasus as well as the early version of the Vaporfly, and the runners in the Vaporfly like definitely sure enough ran faster because you would also I mean it's not exactly equal between the, the Pegasus and the Vaporfly, but, but yeah, so they ran faster. But importantly, they had lower mark i mean they had lower reported muscle soreness but they also had lower blood markers of like muscle damage so there was you know empirical evidence that there was less um you know muscular trauma going on in these shoes in a marathon and then they also did a, a small study in training as well of like some heavy training through a week and saw performance preserved more and you know so that's that's a little bit of data and then there also is enormous amounts of you know anecdote from almost anybody who's running these who says that exact same thing of like i this feels much you know this feels like much less you know hard or rough on my body <laughs> um, des linden mentioned that after she got the 50k world record yeah uh, that that at the end of it she felt much fresher than even at the end of a marathon normally yep and and so i would say my first sensation actually when i ran in the shoes for the first time was oh my gosh, this feels like biking <laughs> in the sense of both the kind of the perpetual motion that you feel and bouncing along with that plate, but also the level of trauma that you do not feel on, on your body. And so I think it actually moves the dial on the physiology of running and the kind of the mechanical, again, that mechanical trauma element 
closer, you know, not all the way there, not even halfway there, but like a step towards cycling in the sense of like, you are, you are now, you're burning your engine without, without kind of burning the chassis so so much. Um, And so, yeah. So how does that affect marathons? Well, it definitely, I think changes the dynamics of the race where, I mean, we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of marathons come down to like, you know, sprint finishes and things like that now that remind you of like a track 10 K. Um, so you're seeing the dynamics of marathon racing play out. Moreover, I also think on a professional level, you'll see guys and girls having success at the marathon that might previously not have had as much or because the sense of in the past, the marathon, one of the, one of the trade-offs or distinguishing factors you had to make was that leg strength that may have came, came at a cost of absolute speed. So you might see people making the transition from being a really good track runner to a pretty good marathoner that otherwise might've actually struggled to have the strength to do that. So I think it actually might change a little bit the dynamic of, of who might be uh, good and great or, or who can be now you know good on the, on the roads that might otherwise not have. So I think it changes the athlete profile. Um, but also I think the big thing that's going to happen is it's going to change the frequency of racing. Um, whereas in the past, you know, marathons, like you said, it would wreck someone. And so, but I think we're going to start to see people, you could see people racing marathons either more frequently. Um, you know, what Yuki Kawauchi used to do, the citizen marathoner who ran many marathons a year, like that might become normal for people, or you might start to see people racing a lot of like half marathons and things like that. So I think that that frequency of racing is going to change. And, and I think that also will change on, you know, we, we haven't even talked about this technology being on the track, but that was one of the big things that rocked the Olympics this year and kind of changed last year is the same technology is now on track spikes. I think it, it'll change track racing in the sense that you'll see, you know, I, I had said this at the beginning of the year of kind of what might happen on, on kind of a different outlet that you, you would see athletes like doubling more frequently and, and have, and racing more. And sure enough, you saw Safan Hassan do her famous, you know, like triple, triple. At, the, yeah. at the Olympics. So I think you'll see a similar thing on the roads and tracks of athletes just racing more frequently because they don't, they don't incur the muscular trauma as much. And, and finally, I think that that might fundamentally change training paradigms in the sense that as runners, our training, we may be able to to log a little bit more like highly specific volumes, start doing more volumes of work at, you know, marathon specific um, speeds, things like that. And, And instead of having two down days between sessions, you could have one down day or you could flip it and say, you might be able to do the same training you've always done, but you'll just recover and absorb it better. Um, so I think it's going to change the dial on training a little bit to make us, to allow us to get fitter. <laughs> and those seem like uh, objectively good things that if it allows people to be able to train more without getting injured or overtrained, yeah. uh, so it maybe bring up the elite level of fitness as well as the gains they get from the shoes on race day. And then also for the rest of us to yeah. be able to, um, train better, uh, train more, recover quicker. Um, and certainly once we get beyond the marathon as well, obviously there's not nearly as much research is done beyond Olympic distances, but the idea of the 100K that you'll be taking on in uh, in a couple of weeks, the, the national championships, that there's a big benefit there because muscle damage becomes an even bigger factor in pace towards the end of an ultra. So if it means that you can 
either be a little bit more aggressive early on because you'll get less muscle damage or just you're not being slowed as much towards the end, that's got to be a, a huge gain. And, and, and I think it's difficult to say how much of an improved performance is shoes versus other things as it is with the marathon and on the track at the Olympics. But we have seen the world record for 100 miles and 24 hours go down this year. And I wonder what percentage of that improvement is shoes. I, I don't know which shoes he wore, but I'd be surprised if it's not some degree of these newer super shoes. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and the 100K. The 100K was the one of the first records to be broken in these shoes. And that was that was the oldest record in track and field. Don Ritchie ran, you know, yep. 6'10 in 1978. And then sure enough, in the Vaporfly, now Kazami shattered the record by, he was like by four minutes or something like that. Um, but four minutes is within the realm of, of just the shoes in terms of speed gains, never mind uh, muscle damage. Gains yeah, yeah, too. exactly. I, I was going to say, I would actually ar- argue like the the amount that he beat the the previous road record, which was 613 by, was probably certainly less than what the benefit that he got from those shoes. Um, and then to your, to, to your point of the 100 mile and the 24 hour record, yeah, he, he definitely, he was in the in the next percent, the new, you know, the, the Vaporfly, the newest iteration of it. And as said, he said in interviews that he, you know, that he loves that shoe. Um, and so, yeah, it, it absolutely, I think, makes an enormous benefit. And further in ultra distances, it gets to that, what we were talking earlier about, the slower you run, the more that that percentage economy improvement translates to, um, to a benefit. Now, I would, I would say one of the interesting things that goes on with, um, and this gets back to like how some of these individual differences in the shoes change. Um, I think for ultra distances, by and large, the shoes are an, enor- an enormous benefit for, for those two reasons you said. One of the interesting things though, like that I've noticed with myself is, so I've run a lot in both the Vaporfly as well as the Alpha Fly. And so if your listeners, uh, the Vaporfly is the shoe with just foam and the carbon fiber plate in it. The Alpha Fly was this kind of the one that came out around when the regulations were, it's what Kipchoge ran his 159 um, attempt in, or not attempt, his 159 marathon. Um, it's that shoe with the foam, but it also has these air pods in it. It's a very, um, it's a much more uh, uh, eccentric uh, <laughs> uh, interpretation of a shoe. <laughs> um, it definitely looks more unusual. Yes. They, they both look pretty unusual compared to a season two years ago. Yeah. But so anyway, so for me running in both of those shoes, if I were to go down to the track and run, you know, a few kilometers in both of them, they both feel very beneficial and, and even hedge towards the alpha fly feeling at times like it might even be slightly more. Now, the data that I have has been there. It's pretty much a wash early on. But as I get more and more fatigued, the structures in the Alpha Fly become like very, like it, it's almost like it, it has very um, constrained movement paths that it allows <laughs> your foot to move through in the ground because, because the architecture in it is so complex. And this gets to the idea of like the thicker and thicker that you make the shoe, you kind of, the, the, the optimality of it becomes more and more constrained um, to both, I would say, mechanics, context, um, things like that. You know, so so anyway, so I've noticed that when I get really fatigued, yeah, the Vaporfly, I I, I love that shoe. Right? <laughs> it's still great, but the Alpha Fly becomes like progressively harder to run in. It's a very strange interaction, and so it gets. It's one of the things that I think is very unsatisfying and frustrating for me. Um, 
as a both as a fan and competitor in the sport, is I I don't like the idea that we have these complex additions that you have to kind of like not only question on race day, you know, under what circumstances it might might or might not be beneficial, but also like to what dimension it may or may not be beneficial, you know, over time. Um, but that's I, I would say that's just like kind of like a nuanced complexity with. That, that is some of the complexity that we're inviting in with more complex footwear. But yeah, by and large, ultra distances. I, I, I think that the, the technology in these shoes is, is definitely going to be substantially beneficial. One of the things that I really look forward to seeing how that plays out will, will be certainly in the 100K times is going to be very nice. And you get that in the, maybe the 24 hour and, um, and those, those races as well. But Comrades is one that we have, you know, score like you know scores and scores of data over many years i think it's going to be interesting and so just for people who aren't aware of what that is yeah. we, we've both raced it we both love it um but it's in south africa it's just over a double marathon rolling hills changes direction each year but it's basically the most competitive ultra race in the world 20, 20 plus thousand people the uh, the records there are insane in fact i believe the uh, the split from the record in the because it's about 55 miles yeah is for 50 miles is quicker than the world record for 50 miles on a track even yeah um, so yeah super fast they're going i think it works out as like under 230 marathon pace times two and a bit with hills um and a bit of heat as well yeah yeah it's vicious but i think it's going to be interesting to see how the shoes kind of shift shift performances in that and we've seen it over the last you know the the 20 2017 and 2018 and 2019 comrades had had people racing in those shoes. Um, and it certainly, what was interesting is they weren't widely disseminated. So like some people did and some people didn't. And so it's interesting, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. But, but yeah, so that'll be, it'll be, those will be good case studies. I think as a, as a researcher, I'm very, I'm very curious to start to look to see how those performances change, but I think it's definitely going to, yeah, they're going to rewrite ultra records are going to be shaken up quite a bit in the coming years. <laughs> Just like so we talked a lot about the, the roads and even the track though, and that these shoes are clearly making enough of a difference that for elite performance, it means all records are going yeah. to keep coming down from those. But what about on trails? Because this is something that um, I've often wondered is, and I've actually done a race that was half road, half trail. And I felt like the, uh, the Nike shoes were faster on the road and slower on the soft trail. So it wasn't even technical or anything. But given you mentioned that a softer terrain, you lose some of that benefit because the ground is absorbing some of that energy rather yeah. than the spring working effectively. It also, if it's uneven, like if it's bumpy, then you're not getting it. It might just be a point on the shoe that is uh, being squished rather than the whole shoe in, in one fluid movement. So is there any research about the effect on trails? And would you say that as long as it's not too technical and you're not going to worry about stability on the trail, are the super shoes still quicker typically on a softer surface or does that, do all the other factors start maybe outweighing that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, in terms of certainly in terms of like lab data, no, we don't, don't have, um, don't have good, don't have data on that, but I can give you kind of some of the speculation maybe on, on the way that some of these factors play. Um, and, and I'll add to it. I, I have a similar experience. I raced JFK last year and I wore the shoes on the Appalachian trail section. We, you know, the, for, for your runner, for your listeners that don't know the JFK 50 miler is it's the oldest ultra marathon in the U S it's one of the, I think it's the, maybe the biggest even 
over a thousand, is, yeah. a thousand yeah. participants. But the first the first fifteen miles or so is on the Appalachian Trail, which is well, you got road and then Appalachian yeah. Trail, then a soft surface, then road again. Yeah. So you're you're getting to really compare how it's feeling on each yeah. of those. Yeah, and <laughs> I I had trained a bit in them on trail like single track trails around Ann Arbor to see if it was where I live and, and work um, in the Midwest and and to see if see how it felt. And I actually thought I'm like you know these. The, the stability thing is a bit of an issue, but I actually like how they bounce along on the on the single track trail. They actually feel kind of like, you know, I've never, I had never worn like a very soft maximal Hoka. Um, I've, I've raced in, or not raced, or yeah, I have raced, but I've run in ultras maximalist shoes before. Um, and, and there is that nice feeling on the trail of like a big of, of absorbing kind of the, un, you know, the, the rocky ground beneath you. And that resiliency actually on a single track trail felt felt very nice, but on the Appalachian Trail it was a disaster to run to run in those shoes. Um, I actually I actually ripped the bottom of the foam like like on a rock. It sounded like a gunshot, um, and it like ripped a chunk of the foam. It stayed intact to, like to continue running, but it was a it was a challenge. But so anyways, so on the on the trails to your question of like how much are they beneficial? It is that is that is something that like we could dive into so many aspects of trail running and how it might affect them that i will say they there are many many of the benefits of the shoes i would say might come at the cost of a lot of things that make a bigger difference on the trails so like on a crushed crushed gravel path yeah the shoes are definitely still going to be quite beneficial on a non-technical trail probably still more beneficial but you're right that the um the actual benefit might start to wash out a bit because you know that softer surface like if you're on you know whether it's like wood chips or grass or something like that um you know that might uh that softer surface might dampen some of the benefits so it might knock it down a little bit um if it was like a very hard otherwise hard packed trail or something like that um any unevenness in the terrain your body is going to like that, that plate has, you know, does enforce like getting back to this idea of a very, you know, a more constrained movement path of your foot. So if the plate is kind of enforcing that on the ground, the more and more uneven that trail, the more and more work your lower limb musculature and your whole body, you know, as, as kind of coordination and compensation is going to have to manage that, new foot interaction with the ground they're going to be you know quote unquote there's an element of like fighting (laughs) the shoe a little bit and so the more and more uneven the ground gets the more and more that'll be a big challenge and so like for me on the appalachian trail where like you're essentially running across large stretches of just like you know softball of football sized boulders like that unevenness is that just is is terrible in those shoes so it, it becomes so this is more the stability that was the issue there so as you said yeah. your lower legs working harder your confidence of the your feel of the ground exactly. is going to be a bit worse you can't move yeah. over you know unthinkingly <laughs> like very fluently mm-hmm. um and then the next point is the traction on it one of the things that these shoes do to to optimize weight one of the critical things for running fast on the road you know is they have very smooth bottoms and a lot of times very minimal rubber on a trail like taking that away from your shoe 
could wipe away all the benefits of like the foam in the sense that if every single foot strike, you're losing ground in, you know, frictional losses um, that I think like that element could affect it. And so then I think the question becomes like, well, could you engineer, you know, some of the elements of these shoes, the favorable elements like the foam or even the plate into, you know, trail shoes. And I suspect that can and maybe should be done. <laughs> like, I think this foam, you know, that foam, better foams have a place in trail running for sure. Um, and the way that a plate interacts, though, I think is is going to be context dependent. It's going to be both person and context dependent. And I mean, the thing that you're, uh, maybe your listeners that are big into trail running might be familiar with is I know there's the company is it Speedland um, made a shoe that's like, it's almost like a customizable super shoe for the trails. And it, it has a crazy price tag. It's like $375 or something like that. But it actually has a layer of that next gen foam with like a somewhat customizable rubber outsole and then a carbon fiber plate that you can flip over to change how flexible it is. Um, so it's kind of a, a super shoe that has these elements that you can adapt. Um, so I think there are a place for that. But I would also say one of the interesting things of trail running with shoes is like some of the things that are not beneficial in road running, like having too much foam that might lose too much energy, um, like an old EVA foam, that kind of thing could actually have a place on the trails where like, you know, doing a like, downhill, like steep downhill technical running on the trails, having a shoe that actually loses a lot of energy with every foot strike is a good thing because your muscles are doing that. So a lot of these like maximally cushioned shoes with bad, quote unquote, bad foams um, have a favorable place on the trails. So I think that adds a further layer of complexity of that, that level of like lack of energy return can be a nice, you know, dampener. It's kind of like, you know, shocks on your mountain bike that, um, you know, maybe dissipate some of the, some of the energy or something like that. So there are, there are so many things on the trail that, that are different contextual, um, factors that, that might wash out the optimizations that you make on the road. And that actually gets back to maybe one of my, you know, one of the things that I, get back to of why I, I think it's good to maybe even limit limit the extent of of footwear performance on the roads, which kind of is embodied in the trails, is is like the more and more complex you allow shoes to become, the more and more fragile they become to very specific contexts. So So the Alpha Flies would be a much harder shoe to run on a technical trail than the next percent or oh, yeah. some of the other ones exactly yeah. and and then if you take that a step further it's like if you were to further optimize these shoes maybe even those adidas shoes getting back to the start of the conversation that that uh the vienna marathon winner warren was disqualified um there are probably road courses that those shoes would be much less beneficial on versus other courses that they would you know i'm talking long flat straight roads versus ones with lots of like turns or uneven, uneven ground, like, you know, bricks or suboptimal asphalt. Um, the more and more that you create a very complex shoe architecture, the more and more it's going to be fragile to like, you know, maybe just straight line running or something like that. And so, you know, you see that in cycling where they have a time trial bike that is a very specific gearing with very specific 
architecture on the wheels that as soon as you start having, you know, even too many turns, it it's, becomes unwieldy. But even once you start going uphill, um, there are gradients that those bikes no longer are, are optimal. And you certainly couldn't navigate them on just a normal road course or like in the Peloton. Um, and then, of course, you would never think to use the standard road bike, like on a mountain bike course or something like that. Like that becomes a whole nother thing. Exactly. It seems like cycling is a pretty good analogy here that yeah. if you're if you have fewer variables on the terrain, then you can optimize for that much easier. While if you're on a varying trail, you've just got to have a shoe that can cope with all those different things rather than only the flat stuff. Otherwise, it gains at one part, but maybe it loses more at another part, I suppose. Yeah. And what's really important, too, is like a lot of the optimizations that you make to make very small performance increments, like in the specific context like on the roads can can uh i would say like non-linear explode the possibility for catastrophe in the other context so like on the trails or something like that if you strip down the outsole on a road shoe to the point where it's probably good for most you know purely asphalt conditions that are not going to be super slippery but but you know you then go to a trail and it's like all of that you know saving yourself half a percent on the roads now you've increased your probability of slipping on the trail by 50 percent or something like that and all of a sudden you slip and the two seconds that you saved per mile stripping that down you've now incurred 30 seconds for slipping and falling um so it's like you or or even more over the course of it of just losing it you know in traction so that's just an example of like you small small gains you know to eke out optimization in certain contexts can come at, um, yeah, can make you fragile to, you know, an, an otherwise black swan event on the, you know, in a context like the trails or something like that. And I'm sure that that's something where there'll be more research and I'll try and work out which elements are going to still be adaptable enough. But as you mentioned, that'll be such a niche market that you're looking at just, um, okay, the, the top 1% who don't mind paying uh, of, of fast runners who don't mind paying an extra $300 for a pair of shoes versus $150. And it's not going to be the biggest sellers for them. So how yeah. much is it worth doing that if the gains on the road are 4%, but the gains on the trail are 1% because you've got to keep it more adaptable. And you know, just to put random numbers on it there, but with that concept. Yeah. And it's funny too, because I think it on the roads, it's it's funny. It's like the roads, the roads are so much more clearer of the benefit. And that's one of the reasons why people go to road racing is for, you know, very clear cut performance comparisons where it's funny when you think of trail racing, it actually is more to that question. Your first question or one of your early questions of does it matter if we can compare ourselves over time? It's like a lot of trail racing is that element of being kind of removed from the absolute time because weather conditions play an enormous role, trail conditions, like, you know, it's like the trail is never the same, you know, one day to the next. Yeah, we have course records and all time records, but it's like, we recognize how, you know, we can see great performances independent of that. Um, so maybe, maybe there is the element of it matters less than, less than I kind of you know, painted the the fear picture of it mattering a ton. I don't know. But like one of the reasons people go to the roads is for that, you know, clear cut, measurable performance and people go to the trails for it not being that. But that's also one of the reasons why I think it'll be hard to figure out how much of the shoes are beneficial on the trails or not. It's interesting. I was thinking yeah. about thinking back to like how shoes affect trail. Um, 
this just occurred to me, like this was, I don't know why I was thinking of this a few weeks ago, but like Jim Walmsley in his first Western States, the, that one where he just kind of like, you know, just got, got lost at mile 93 yeah, yeah. while on course record. I think course, he yeah. did that in Adidas, uh, the old Adidas Adios Boost, which is actually what the marathon world record was set in at the time. Um, I think he was wearing that shoe through the whole thing, which is kind of crazy if you think about like, you know, shoes that are advantageous for roads, trails, who knows, you know, I think it's so, it becomes so, it's, yeah, there, there are, there are so many questions that it's almost like the number of, the number of variables and the magnitude of the effect of those variables, like almost outnumber our, like our, our, our ability. And I suppose how important each one is to each person. So yeah. for one person, stability might be more important. For yeah. another one, it might be the reduction in muscle damage that makes more of a difference to their performance. But there's definitely less comparability, even person to person, never mind course to course or yeah. anything else. But I, I would like to thank you so much for all the, the things you said that I, I want to be mindful of your time there. And um, I think that was, a really good overview of, of kind of what the super shoes do and what they don't do <laughs> and uh, and you know how it has changed dramatically i mean there's no doubt that it's night and day when we see that in records as well so uh, anything else you wanted to mention no that was that was awesome i you know and i i would say if anybody's interested in you know seeing whether it's some of my publications or following you know the conversation around this feel free to follow me on twitter um or uh my personal website it's just jeffreyburns.com see links to publications things like that or you know feel free to follow me on strava if you want to see some of my training and whatnot but other than that thanks to everyone you know for listening and and yeah sounds good well, i'll link all that in the show notes as well and uh, thanks for your time there and uh, good luck in the 100K National Championships. Yeah, thank you. It was, it was an absolute pleasure, Ian. Thanks. Always love talking to you and uh, love Podium Runner. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Cheers, Jeff. Bye. You can follow Jeff Burns on Instagram and Twitter at, at Jeffrey Burns. And you can contact me, Ian Sharman, at shamanalpha.com. And also let me know if there are any particular topics or guests you'd be interested in. Finally, it really helps the podcast reach more people if you rate or subscribe on whatever channel you get your shows from, so we really appreciate that. And check out PodiumRun.com for articles for runners of all levels. Thanks, see you next month.